everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. The title of it is Proposing a Counseling Ministry for a Church. This is going to be an insightful and instructive webinar for those people who are interested in starting a counseling ministry at their local church. And so I want to talk about how to establish that. And then for those of you who are interested, you can watch this webinar, and then hopefully you will be able to present a proposal to your local church uh, so that you can help them to uh, begin that counseling ministry to take care of the local body as well as those in the community who seek your help. My name is Rick Thomas, and I'm very glad that you are here. For those of you who are listening to the podcast version of this webinar, thank you so much for listening in. If you are one of those people that uh, believe that you want to be part of a counseling ministry. Maybe you want to lead one and you want to work up a proposal to present to your leadership team, then I would encourage you to move over to our website and watch this one-hour webinar because there's a lot of information here. And maybe you would even find that it would be vital to show this webinar to your leaders so that they can see it and then you all can work together. Uh, But this will give you some key ideas to think about as you propose a counseling ministry to your local church. The big idea for this webinar is a question that I have been asked several times, and so I have written out the big idea in a question form as though someone was asking me how to start a counseling ministry. And so here is the big idea. I belong to a local church and love biblical counseling. How do I propose a counseling ministry for our church? which does not have one. What are a few things I need to consider as I prepare a presentation to my leaders? And just so you know that uh, in 1997, 1998, I started a counseling ministry at our 1,200-plus member local church, the church that I attend today. And so I do have some experience and familiarity Well, how of how to start a counseling ministry at a local church that does not have one. That counseling ministry is going well today, and so I want to take some of the things that I I learned from way back then, as well as uh, consulting with local churches and helping believers over the next 25 years and put some of those ideas down in this webinar, and I trust it will be beneficial for you. Now, who will benefit from watching this webinar? Well, there are three particular demographics. One of those are pastors who want to know how to identify the right person for this ministry. Now, this is a critical aspect of this webinar that cannot be understated. The person that you put on point is fulfilling a pastoral role. They may not be a pastor. You could call them the director of of counseling ministries, and that's fine, but a, a vital part of pastoral ministry is shepherding, and counseling is 90% shepherding. There's a lot of administration involved, but it is a shepherding responsibility, and so it is pastoral. Therefore, pastors need to know about the person that they're putting on point because they will, in, in many instances, have more contact and more intimate contact with the people of the church than the pastors will. And then the second demographic are Christians who are interested in leading or being part of this ministry. They need to 
walk into this uh, idea, this concept of a counseling ministry at a local church with their eyes wide open. And so I trust to bring clarity to that throughout this webinar. And then the third demographic will be church people who want to know their role in this type of ministry. And why this is critical is because no counseling ministry that will work well will work unless it is a full-body experience. It cannot be a church that has a corner office somewhere where people go to receive counseling. If that is the beginning and end of a counseling ministry, well, that's not really a counseling ministry. True biblical counseling in the local church is a full-body experience. Therefore, the entire church should be interested in this webinar so that they understand uh, the worldview as well as their potential responsibility in uh, helping this uh, biblical counseling ministry not just get off the ground, but be the life and the breath of the church as far as discipleship is concerned. And so these are the three demographics that will benefit from this webinar. I have a six-point outline. Point number one, what kind of person should be leading the ministry? Number two, in what ways can the church expect to benefit? Number three, what should be some of the goals of this ministry? Number four, where will we counsel people from our church? Number five, should we charge? If so, how much? And then finally, point number six, how can leaders provide oversight and accountability? Now, please understand that this presentation is not an exhaustive treatment on this subject. It would take several webinars, a few consultation meetings, and maybe a couple of books to be able to talk about in a robust kind of way of how to build a counseling ministry at a local church. But what I want to cover in this webinar are just a few essential things to begin building a biblical counseling ministry, potentially in your local church. And so let's take point number one. What kind of person should be leading the ministry? The primary person leading this ministry should be a man. And here are several reasons that I say that. One, he will be teaching the church. Number two, he will be counseling men and couples. Number three, he will be speaking at other churches. Number four, he'll be promoting counseling locally and extra locally. And number five, he will be doing the primary training of counselors. Now, you could add number six, as I have already stated in a previous slide, that this is a pastoral function whether you call the person a pastor or not. Again, they can be the director of counseling ministries. But a key aspect of, of all pastoral ministry is getting into the nooks and crannies of individual lives. It is a shepherding responsibility, and that's what biblical counseling is. It is mostly that, almost exclusively that, outside of a little bit of administration, and therefore having someone in a pastoral position, whether by title or not, is essential. Now, the ideal situation is to have a man leading the ministry and a lady coming alongside who is also highly competent, highly trained, highly experienced, and meets all the criteria that I'm about to present to you. Now, with that in mind, I want to give you a list of things that you should be looking for, not just with the person who's on point of the ministry, but everybody who is a part of the ministry. By the way, the list that I'm 
I'm going to share with you is applicable to any leadership role in the local church, whether it's the worship team, the pastoral staff, or the children's ministry, the nursery, or uh, ladies' Bible study, etc. These are qualities that are uh, transcendent, and they are universal, and they are applicable to everyone, but no question, these things are essential for someone who is so involved intimately in people's lives and can impact people at such a transformative level, either for the good or bad. Of course, the most important thing is their character. Now, for each one of these points that I'm going to make, I'm going to give you two subpoints for each one. So for character, I have assessment and maturity. What I mean by assessment is that the leaders look at this individual and they assess their character. That's what they want to do. Does this person have the character qualities that you want uh, to be able to get into uh, people's lives on a very intimate and personal level? Perhaps a pastor could think about this as, would you want this person counseling your spouse or counseling your child? Do you trust them at a character level to be able to do that? And then I have maturity. Maturity means that uh, this is not a novice. Uh, this is a person who has been down the road many miles. Now, there's other things that will fold into maturity, but I'm just going to speak to it in a limited way here. Is this a mature Christian from a character perspective? And then number two is calling. The, the two points, the subpoints I have are internal calling and external. Internal means that this person believes God wants them to be part of the counseling ministry. External calling means that other people affirm that. They see it too, and they see this individual as being a good fit for the counseling ministry. The reason both of these are essential is because some people can have a burden for something, but they are not qualified to fulfill that burden. That's an internal calling alone. A lot of people who have gone through difficulties and, and deep hurts in their lives. They want to help people, and they're very sincere about doing it. Unfortunately, some of them do not meet the qualifications. They just do not have the capacity or the ability to fulfill that kind of role of working with people at such a complex and intimate level. And so internal calling alone is not enough. But external calling is where other people, they see, they affirm, they believe, uh, they think that this person could uh, step into this role. Number three is conscience. My two subpoints are freedom and no dominating sin. Let me explain. Freedom basically means a bibliocentric conscience. When you're internal moral thermostat, conscience, co-knowledge, when your inner voice is singing the same tune as the Bible, then you are as free as you can possibly be. We know that our conscience is moldable. It can be dull to heart. It can be uh, tender and sensitive and weak. And so the conscience can change. But the person in this role, they want to be in that sweet spot, that bibliocentric sweet spot where their inner voice and God's voice are on the same page. Because if you have a, a dull conscience, for example, then you will not be able to see what you need to see. You will not be able to hear what you need to hear when you're helping people. You need to be as free as you can. If you have a weak 
conscience, then you will be hung up on things that you really don't need to be hung up on. This ties back to maturity that I was talking about earlier. And then, of course, no dominating sins. No life-dominating sins. Well, of course, that will make a dull conscience or a hard conscience. And also, in addition to that, uh, you are helping people many times who are tied to life-dominating sins, and you want to be exhibit A of what the hope and the help of the gospel brings to an individual, and so you want to be different in that way from those that you have helped, meaning that you have come to a place in your life where you are free from life-dominating sins, and that too also ties back into maturity. And then my fourth point is community, and under that I have family input and church need. Now, what I mean by family input is that this individual's family believes that this person should uh, step into this role, that they can step into this role, and they are for it. One of the precautions that I have at this point is that sometimes people can be more so ministry-centric that they can be serving the ministry and their family is left behind. And so you want to address the family. If a man is thinking about stepping into this role, uh, you want to talk to his wife. If a wife is wanting to step into this role, you want to talk to the husband. You want to make sure, one, that their family is intact, their marriage is intact, but you also want to make sure that everybody is on the same page as you address the community as you're looking for the proper person to step into this role. And then church need. Is the church at the place to where a biblical counseling ministry makes sense? Every church, like our progressive sanctification, is on a, a chronology, a timeline, and there's a there's a time for everything that you introduce in the church. And so is there a need? Uh, is the church ready to have this kind of ministry? And maybe as you go through this webinar, you can answer that question in a more accurate way. And then my fifth point is capacity, the capacity of the individual. Now, this is significant, and it needs to be discerned. There is a unique gift mix for this kind of person. I mentioned some of the qualifications for the man that's leading. There were six things that I mentioned, and including, including having the ability to do pastoral ministry, to being able to communicate at the on a Sunday morning, uh, communicating a counseling message to the local church, being able to go out to other local churches and communicate with other pastors when they have church members that are coming to our church, and you want to interact with those church leaders so that you maintain a good reputation in the church. This person is multi-talented, has a broad skill set, has a a gift mix that will be able to to encompass all of the needs for the individual who is leading the ministry. Now, everybody that's part of the ministry doesn't have to do that, but there is a leadership gift, and then there are those people who are good at being second men and second women, uh, second-tier and third-tier individuals that do not need this high-level capacity, but we're talking about the person that's leading the ministry. Now, they also need high-end ability meaning this individual can counsel all comers uh, because they are uh, the person that's leading the ministry. And if they can't handle or can't 
do not have the ability to counsel all comers, then there is no place for counselees to come, and you have to ask yourself, why do you have a counseling ministry if you have the person on point of the ministry who doesn't have the expansiveness in knowledge and experience and skill set uh, to be able to counsel at that level? Again, we're talking about high-end capability when it comes to counseling people and leading other leaders. And then we get into, so capacity speaks to the the bucket size, uh, a large soul individual, and then competency speaks to the actual training that they have received and the experience that they have. And so under competency, I do have training and experience. Both of those things are essential. Training is speaking to the academy, uh, the education requirement. Uh, in best case scenario, this person should have a master's in biblical counseling, though it's not necessary, but they need to have expansive training in biblical counseling. And then number two, they need to have experience. Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours. I mean, you can go and get all the training in the world, uh, but if you haven't put in the reps, if you don't have the repetition, if you don't have the experience where you have been doing this for a number of years, then training alone will not be enough, not at this level, and it will fold in on you, and it will not just be an awful testimony for the church, but you'll end up hurting people. And then uh, number seven, it looks like here, I have courage. Under courage, it's an individual who has mortified their fear. Not that they have perfectly removed all uh, traces of fear from their souls, but they have mortified it because it takes a lot of courage to lead a counseling ministry because there are many relational dynamics that you have to encounter. And then point number two is understanding sympathy. Uh, Understanding sympathy basically means that uh, it's not an individual who is going to drown with their victims, but they have the courage to stand outside of what is going on in a person's life and give them courageous and compassionate uh, help. I have an entire webinar devoted to this idea of sympathy, and it's essential. And then finally, number eight is compassion. The two points that I mentioned are patience and not being self-righteous. Now, there are many other elements elements that you could add uh, to all eight of these things that I've listed here. But patience under compassion is essential because people will not change on your timetable. You have to recognize that your job is to water and plant and not bring growth. That is job, uh, God's job. And then also self-righteousness is looking down on people, which is a easy temptation for many of us in the helping profession because uh, people are not moving according to our plans or uh, they're struggling with issues that we don't struggle with and it could be uh, easy or a easy temptation to succumb to to elevate yourself above them as though you are better than them and so what kind of person should be leading this ministry you're looking at character calling conscience community capacity competency courage and compassion point number two in what ways can the church expect to benefit well the primary way is to glorify God Now, what I mean by glorifying God, I mean, you could say to spread his fame. A church that has a solid worldview of discipleship slash biblical counseling, and they are doing it well, uh, they will spread the fame of God. Now, the way that they would spread the fame of God is by being Christ-like. 
I mean, that's how you make God's name great in all the world is being like his son, to be Christ-like. And so as the church continues to transform through, let's say, biblical counseling, according to this webinar, into Christ-likeness, they will spread God's fame. He will be glorified, and there will be a reciprocal effect. His favor will be on you. And so that is a huge benefit for the local church. Now, the way that that plays out, I want to lay out a a few, a handful of sequential steps of of how you can do this, spread God's fame by being Christ-like. First, I will look at the individual or the individuals who are part of this ministry. One, they are exhibit A to the very thing that they are teaching. And so these are people who, as I said in a previous slide, that they have somewhat mortified some of their sins, that they are in a mature place in their Christianity. They have not perfected it, I'm not saying that, but they are at a mature place, and so they are representative. Uh, They can say what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow me as I follow Christ. And so if they are living out the very things that they are teaching and gaining victory, for the most part, over those things, then they are representing Christ very well, and then that will impact the local church in an immense way. Therefore, in order to be Exhibit A, uh, the person leading the ministry and all the people who are part of a counseling ministry, they have to see themselves as, as their number one counselee. I have always saw myself as the number one counselee, whether I was leading a counseling ministry and the ministry that I developed in our local church or when I was pastoring or as I've been operating this ministry for the past decade and almost a half, uh, I see myself as my number one counselee. And if that's the way that you observe yourself, hopefully uh, you'll continue to transform into that very thing that you're asking other people uh, to be. And then, of course, we're talking about being Christ-like, which would spread God's fame. And then number two, the individual's family. Their family is Exhibit B because their family has been affected more by the person leading the ministry than anyone else. My family has been affected more by me than anybody else has been affected by me. And so my family naturally becomes exhibit B to uh, my discipleship skill set, my ability. And so what you're looking at in the person that's leading this ministry, you're looking at themselves. Are are they representing a Christ-like example? Are they their number one counselee? Then number two, is their family steady changing? Is there a steady change? I am not suggesting that they have perfected anything, again. But what you're looking for is the presence of growth, the presence of transformation, that this person leading the ministry is having impact on those people closest to them. And of course, the closest people to them is their family. And then the third group that's a part of this spreading God's fame by being Christ-like is the local church. Now, the way that the individual leading the ministry, what they want to do, and this is how the church will benefit, uh, 
is that the individual leading the ministry will be training certain members within the local church. They will be identifying and isolating members who seem to have the potential to be able to be uh, counselors, to be able to do biblical counseling. Now, that is the first job of the person leading the ministry. If it's not the first job, and if counseling is their first job, well, then they only have a a limited amount of time, and their caseload is going to fill up quickly. They will have a waiting list, and they will not be able to have impact on the church. And so training always has to be 1A for the person leading this ministry, and then counseling has to be 1B. You cannot get that order in reverse because you want this person primarily replicating themselves. If they are growing in Christ, exhibit A, and they're the people who are most influenced by them, exhibit B, their family is growing in Christ, then you want them to pour themselves into a certain group uh, within the church who seem to have the presence of the gifting necessary to do biblical counseling, and that would be their primary job. And then you would want them to be able to counsel others as well. For example, if the person leading the ministry was uh, working with small group leaders, for example, training them, well, most of the counseling situations that come up in the church would be handled by the small group leaders. Very little counseling would rise to the level of where the point person of the counseling ministry would have to deal with it because you have effectively trained people to be able to accommodate most of the needs in the church. And so the church would hugely benefit on so many levels. More people can receive soul care, or what we're calling here, counseling because more people are trained. Uh, The person leading the ministry will be free to do more training because they have been equipping, like the illustration that I used, of of equipping the small group leaders, or maybe uh, they have a counseling team. But again, as they counsel that team, then the people who need soul care will rise up through uh, that process and not have to meet with the person on point. And then another way that the church can benefit is that they can partner with other churches. And what they would do is that they will train and counsel other churches. And so this is goodwill uh, throughout the community. It's a good reputation for this local church. I'll speak more to that training and counseling a little later. And then there is community. How can the church benefit? Well, there are two points here. They can counsel folks in the community, and they can assimilate them into your local church. When I'm talking about the community here, it's people who do not belong to your church and people who do not belong to any other church. They come in uh, through the door of counseling at your church, and so therefore you can impact the community and uh, you can assimilate them into your church because they do not belong uh, to another Once you raise the counseling flag at a local church, and if you're doing it well and you're good at it, it becomes an evangelistic tool. It also draws in the disenfranchised and those who have been burnt out by, uh, sometimes you hear the complaint that I don't like organized religion and other people are cynical about the church, but when their lives and their families begin to flame out, uh, many of them look toward the church. And if you have a robust and effective counseling ministry, they 
may look your way, and you can provide soul care for them and and hopefully gradually bring them in uh, to your local church. And so it's an ideal way to uh, increase, uh, to grow your church, and ultimately be able to impact more people. So these are some of the ways that the church could expect to benefit, uh, starting with the life of the person on point all the way out to the community as you reach out to help those hurting souls. All right, before I continue into my other points, I do want to take a brief coffee break and just ask you ever so quickly that if you would consider any of these six things that you see here on the list or any combination of these six things, I would love for you to partner with us. Now, everybody can pray for our ministry, and I would I would love it if you would just jot our ministry down and say, I'm going to pray for this ministry on a daily or weekly basis or whatever your sequence is, and just ask God to continue to bless this ministry as we take the practical message of Christ globally. And then you can like us on our social media platforms. You can share our resources. You can write uh, reviews for our podcast, for example. You can write reviews for our books. You can write your pastor and say, I want you to be uh, to know about this ministry, and I want you to know what God has done uh, to me through this ministry. Write a friend. Tell people about our ministry. And then for those of you who are able to partner with us financially, uh, please note I mean, that we made a decision many years ago to give our resources away you're watching this webinar and you're not paying for it. These are free resources, and by the grace of God, we're going to continue to give our resources away. But we do that trusting God that he will move a few hearts uh, to underwrite our ministry. And so if you're able to help that way, that would be great. Thank you for listening to my coffee break. My next point is, what should be some of the goals for this ministry? I want to list a few things here. One of those is preserving pastors. And what I mean by that is uh, that pastors should not be counseling full-time. Pastors should be counseling a little bit because they want to keep their ear to the ground. They want to know what's going on at the, the heartbeat level of the church and what's going on in people's lives. But pastors, their job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And if a pastor uh, did counseling full-time, then he would be the counseling pastor. Uh, because if you're good at it and you're counseling full-time, then you can't do the other work of the ministry. I pastored for several years, and there are uh, 47 things that a pastor has to do. They, they wear many hats, and counseling is just one of them. And so you don't want your pastors to be bogged down in ongoing counseling sessions. And so this is a, a huge goal for the local church is to where it can release the pastors to do the equipping unless one of these pastors uh, is the pastor of the counseling ministry, as I talked about earlier. Again, whether you call this individual a pastor or a director, it doesn't really matter, but it is a full-time job if you do it well. And so it preserves pastors by giving them the freedom to uh, do the full spectrum of what's involved in pastoral ministry. And uh, they can provide care through you. 
uh, use this expression, do you want my care or do you want my attention? Well, a pastor can't give every person in the building his undivided attention, but the pastor can uh, give every person in the building his care through the people that he has equipped. And so if he's part of equipping this lead person of this counseling ministry, then technically, virtually, everybody in the church can receive care through the pastor, but it will come through this individual that's leading the biblical counseling ministry. So point number one, preserving pastors. Point number two, some of the goals of the ministry is replicating leaders. The person that's leading this ministry should be spending very few hours counseling and many hours training. I talked about this earlier, that point number one, 1A is training and 1B is counseling. And if you get that reversed, you will be bogged down in counseling. You'll have a waiting list and uh, eventually it will bottleneck to such a point that people will become discouraged uh, and and even uh, not, not even incentivized to want to be part or to go to counseling because they're just one person that's doing all the work. In addition to that, that no person doing biblical counseling should be counseling 40 hours a week. Uh, You can't do that. It's too grinding. It's too draining on the soul. I mean, at best, if you're counseling 12 to 16 hours a week, uh, that is a lot. And, And somewhere within that Uh, framework of 12 to 16 hours, that should be uh, your limit. You should not be counseling more than that. Historically, I counsel for two hours, always have. And so if I'm counseling for two hours, and I do that because we have a relational model of counseling, I I'm just not a practitioner of of counseling people for 55 minutes. It has more of a herding cattle effect to it, and it's a non-relational model where you're just running people through. But people need time to, to have their souls cared for, and so within counseling, I've always counseled for two hours. But if I'm counseling 14 hours a week, then I'm only talking about seven people that I'm counseling a week. That is why you want to spend more time training. You have to replicate, teach those things that God has taught you. You pass it on to others, and then if you've trained up three leaders, then it's four of you that's working 14 hours a week, and so you will be able to accommodate more counseling cases if you have 1A and 1B in the right order. Another goal of the ministry is sanctifying the people. There are several ways of doing that. First, you want to involve the whole body. Uh, This is why I talked earlier about is this the time in this church to introduce a biblical counseling ministry because it's really not a ministry. It is a world view. It's an idea that the entire church embraces and everybody is looking for their spot, uh, their place to be able to be part of what God is doing through the counseling ministry. And so you want to involve the whole body. Now, you can do that by obviously counseling people that come that are in need. Uh, But the question in counseling is that when is counseling over for the counselee? Counseling is over for the counselee when that counselee is able to go and make disciples. 
counseling is not about just getting over your problem. That's part of what counseling is. But a full counseling worldview is you get help for your problem so that you can go out and help others. And so sanctification is not about people getting better exclusively. It's about them getting better so they can go and equip others. I'm not suggesting that everybody in the church has to be involved in the counseling ministry, but everybody in the church has to have a discipleship worldview. By the way, I prefer the word discipleship over counseling. I'm using the word counseling more in this webinar than I I do probably in any other time of our ministry, but I'm talking about proposing a counseling ministry for the local church. But in my mind, every time I say counseling, I'm saying discipleship. And so you want the entire church involved in the discipleship process. And so it's preserving pastors, one of the goals of the ministry. It's replicating leaders. Number three, it's sanctifying people. And then number four, it's inviting the community. As I said previously, you can grow the church through soul care, and I'll speak more to that in just a moment. But if you do raise the flag at your local church and you say that we care about people and we have a counseling ministry, people will believe you and they will come because people are hurting and they are looking for answers and they will come to you and they will love what you're doing. They will benefit from your soul care practices Many of them uh, will be part of your local church. So it preserves pastors, it replicates leaders, it sanctifies the local church, and it invites the community. Where will we counsel people from our church? Well, there are three answers to that question. Uh, The first answer is you would counsel people from uh, your church at the building. But it's important that you understand that you do not have a, a corner office worldview, meaning where people in your church begin to say, oh, you have a problem. Well, what you need to do is you need to go down this hallway and the last door on the left, and that is the counseling office, and that is where you will get the help that you're looking for. That is one of the worst statements that you can make. That's a worldview that you do not want to communicate. And so even though you may counsel at the building, which is an excellent place to counsel, you do not communicate a corner office worldview. It is a full body experience. But there will be some situations, there will be some people, some complex cases that will rise to the level to where they need to go to the counseling office. But many of these people will receive help in their small groups. Uh, They will receive help from friend to friend. And there will be a few that will end up going to the counseling office and doing that at the building. uh, That is fine. You also want to make sure that you do same gender counseling, meaning men counsel men and women counseling women. That's why I said earlier that the ideal situation is uh, to have a man on point and because he will be doing marriage counseling and, and he will be counseling men and then uh, a competent lady coming alongside and she'll be counseling the women in the church. I don't counsel women. I have met with them, uh, but not 
long term, and I would meet with them under conditions, uh, depending on where I have been in my vocational journey, whether it's starting a counseling ministry or pastoral ministry or or this particular ministry that I'm I'm doing now. There's been iterations, but in all of these, I have not put myself in a situation to where I'm counseling women one long term and then two by myself. Uh, some of the ways that I handle that, well, one is short term, but uh, I will have Lucia, for example, uh, if I were meeting people. Uh, sometimes that she would sit in on counseling sessions. I would have trainees, uh, people that I'm training in the local church that would sit in on counseling sessions. I would have elders from other churches if I'm counseling folks from other churches that would sit in on counseling sessions. I would have an administrator right outside uh, the office with the door uh, open or ajar uh, so that they are there. Uh, because you don't want you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're counseling the opposite sex, and also you want to protect them. It goes both ways. I don't want to be in a position to where I could be accused of something that's that's not true, and I don't I don't want people to be uncomfortable because uh, they're meeting with uh, the other gender. Also, you'll have the issue of, uh, for example, uh, women can be attractive to male counselors uh, because they can assume that the counselor has his life together and he's so different from my husband. And I have had that happen in counseling as well. And so when you stick to same-gender counseling, you can get away from a lot of the potential problems that, that could happen. So if you counsel in the building, you, you don't have a corner office worldview. Uh, you have same-gender counseling. Counseling in the building can also create fear of man issues, meaning uh, some people struggle with fear of man. And so when they come to the church building and check in at the administrative offices and say, I'm here to see the counselor because my life has messed up, they can be embarrassed by that. They have fear of man issues. And so that is a negative by having a counseling office uh, at the church building because some people are insecure that way. And it is a Thing, and you'll find a number of people who are like that, and so you want to uh, think through that, and maybe you can have different access points for how people come to the counseling office if it's at the church uh, building. But you do want a high view of the local church as well, meaning that you spend most of your time uh, counseling people at the church because those are the people ultimately that you're responsible toward, primarily because they have committed yourself uh, themselves to your shepherding care. And then there's a case to be made for remote uh, location counseling, whether it's in a coffee shop or in an office, or it could be a building that is on the same property as the uh, church building, and it would depend on uh, the type of facility that you have and where the church is financially, and can they have an off-site building that is on the same grounds as the church building that would take care of the fear of man issues, of course. But you want to make sure that you have counselor accountability and this goes both ways, accountability so that the counselor uh, can guard his or her heart and the counselee can guard uh, his or her heart as well. Now, there are anti-church folk who prefer remote uh, because they just don't want to be part of a local church, and they had rather not only main, maintain anonymity, uh, but they just prefer to go to a place that's not associated with a church, and so that can be a plus as well. There are also extra costs if you have a remote location, but then also a remote location, like if you meet in a coffee shop to do formalized biblical counseling, which I don't recommend. I've done 
it a number of times, but I don't recommend it because it it inhibits the crying. Uh, Again, if you have a relational model of counseling to where you want uh, people to uh, embrace it fully, uh, the counseling session, then you want to create an environment that's conducive for them to be as transparent and honest and vulnerable as they can possibly be. And so that's a consideration. Uh, the, the best place is doing it, uh, having a counseling uh, office and offices in the building, however that may be configured. And then, of course, you can counsel in the home, but this is more body-to-body, life-over-coffee, close friends, but not formal counseling. I would not recommend having formalized counseling in your home where you're bringing strangers into your house, people that you don't already have a relationship with. Uh, body-to-body ministry, life-over-coffee, and it might be better for you to think of it this way. It's not counseling. It's it's two friends meeting, doing discipleship. That also ties into the previous point of remote location. That's not necessary. doesn't have to be primarily formalized biblical counseling, but these are two people that are meeting to do discipleship. Again, if it is a body-life worldview, it can be formalized biblical counseling, uh, but 90% of it is going to be discipleship. And so if it's formalized biblical counseling, have it in the building, uh, typically is the best idea, and you configure it accordingly. And then discipleship, which is 90% of, of what a counseling worldview is in a local church, well, it can be done remotely and in the home uh, because it's not necessarily formalized. And so where will the counsel, where will we counsel people from our church? Question, should we charge? And if we do charge, how much? Uh, let me go ahead and answer the question that you should charge. You should charge for the counseling. Now let me explain uh, what I mean by charging. I'm not talking about monetary. Uh, And so, but first of all, before I get into that in a little bit of detail, let me ask this question. Uh, Does the church pay you? And so you're leading a counseling ministry. Does the church pay you or can you work for free? The person that's leading a counseling ministry at a local church, it is a full-time job. If you do it well, it is a full-time job. I mean, you you can say, you you can do it part-time. But at some point, if you're doing it well, it's going to continue to grow, and it's going to be hard to keep that within 10 hours or 12 hours or 20 or 24 hours. Uh, eventually, it's going to go to uh, full-time work, especially if you're doing it the way that I'm presenting it here, meaning you're not just counseling people. If you're if you're just counseling people at your local church, then you really don't have a biblical counseling ministry uh, in the sense of a local church having a biblical counseling ministry. What you're doing is you're just counseling people. You take on so many people that you will meet every week, and it's kind of a straightforward process, but that is not a what I'm talking about, a worldview at your local church. Those are two different things. And so if you're leading a counseling ministry at a local church and you're doing all the things that's involved, as I've suggested here in this webinar, then you have to ask the question, is the church paying you for your time uh, if you're moving toward full-time and working toward full-time and, and your church is ready to encompass all of these concepts that I'm communicating here, they probably should pay you. Uh, 
then you have to ask, can you work for free, meaning that you have a revenue stream from some other means to where you're not dependent on, on income? And so those are questions that needs to be discussed if you're going to pr- propose a counseling ministry. If you're going to sit down to build, a, if you're going to build a tower, you need to sit down and count the cost. And if you are talking about instilling, installing a biblical counseling ministry at a local church, you need to think about what that's going to look like five years from now, two years from now, 10 years from now. And as it continues to grow, especially if you're good at counseling, it's going to grow and people are going to come to you and they're going to ask for training. They're going to say, I want to do what you do. Will you train me to do that? When I started this ministry a number of years ago, I was just writing articles for my counseling ministry as a way of supplementing my counselees. I wanted to give them something when they were not meeting with me, but people started reading those articles and then they began to ask me questions and then Someone wrote in and said, do you have a a way of training people? And it continued to grow. And so if you meet all the criteria that I went through on the very first slide, those eight things, then you're qualified to lead a counseling ministry. Therefore, if you are qualified, people are going to come, counselees and those who want to do it. And there is no way that you're going to keep it contained. And so there will be a financial burden, uh, not just on you, because you will work to the place to where you would not be able to do anything else, uh, and there will also be a financial burden for the resources that are needed to uh, cover the cost of this ministry. And so we're talking about should you charge. Before I get into the details of that, I want to counsel Laura, the person leading the ministry, to think about uh, what it can look like two years, four years, ten years from now. And then as far as compensation is concerned, uh, counselees should pay, though not monetary. And so that's my overarching uh, idea here. Yes, they should pay, but not monetary. Now let me break that down. For example, if if you're counseling church people, they are paying. They're paying through their tithes and offerings. And so generally speaking, they are giving offerings to the church, and so they are paying, and you want to care for them. I mean, that's what shepherding is. This is a shepherding job. This is a pastoral-like job. They're giving offerings. They have committed themselves to the local church. They're at this church because they want to grow and mature, the counseling ministry is one aspect of the local church. They're paying through offerings, and so it doesn't make sense to charge them uh, financially. And then the community, the community pays by attending the church meetings, meaning that the community, it's not people that belong to a local church or people that live in the community. See, here's one of the problems with offering free counseling is that they have no skin in the game. And if people don't have skin in the game, they will take advantage of you. Hey, it's free. I can go when I want to and cancel when I want to. I don't have to do what they ask me to do. And so what I do to make counselees pay 
is I don't charge them money, but I give them things to do to vet their sincerity and their determination to work on uh, whatever the issues are that they say they have and they say that they want to work on. But what I find is that uh, most people have buyer's remorse, uh, meaning they come to counseling and then they realize the cost of counseling meaning I have to do so many things like I thought this was going to be a quick fix and my problems would go away. But actually, it's taken me 20 years to uh, get, for the accumulative effect of these problems to weigh me down to such a point that I'm coming to counseling and it's not going to go away in, in two sessions. No, it's not. It's going to take some work. And so I vet their seriousness about the change process by appealing to them to pay. And for the community, one of the ways that they pay is by attending the church meetings. You don't belong to a local church, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to attend our church service on Sunday morning during the duration of your counseling. Now, there's another reason for that. The other reason is you know that counseling is not enough to help this person. And so you want to create good companions, tributaries that pour into this person's soul so that they can be affected as much as possible. One and done counseling sessions every week or two weeks is not near enough for what this individual needs. And so you want to start surrounding them with these tributaries, these good companions, in addition to counseling. And so not not only does it vet the seriousness of the individual who is coming to counseling, but it also has a sanctifying effect because now they are participating in more than one means of grace that this church offers. And then there are other churches where people come from other churches. It's inevitable that will happen because you have you've raised the the counseling flag and they realize that you can help them and so they they jump the fence and they come over to the greener grass and they land in in your church building and so now you have to navigate through that and so they have to pay too and the policy that i had when i was leading a counseling ministry initially when i started my career at our local church that we attend today is that if you come from another church, then I need a leader from that church to come with you. Now, there were different reasons for that. One, that in Hebrews 13, 17, it says that they will give an account for how they shepherd. And this is a a sobering thought, that pastors will give an account for how they care for their sheep. And if a sheep is leaving one corral, and it's coming over to another to receive care from another shepherd, then I want to honor that shepherd at that other church. And so I want them to know what we're doing with their sheep. It'd be kind of like if your child went and received help from someone else and not you. Well, you the honorable thing to do is for you to know about it. Now, I realize that there are footnotes that I need to make here, and I understand that, that there's problems uh, when someone comes to a different local church to receive help. There's several issues that you have to work through, but I'm dress addressing it on the most simplistic level here, just for time's sake. If you want to talk about some of the iterations of this and the variations of this, you can jump on our community forum and, and we can talk about it because it is a worthy discussion to have. And so if you're at that point, uh, then I would encourage you to uh, do that. 
but we want to maintain a good reputation in the community. We don't want to be charged with uh, stealing sheep. And so we want to make sure that other churches are aware of what's going on as much as is appropriate, as much as is reasonable. And again, depending on the circumstances, there could be uh, some issues to where you'd have to walk through that in a most delicate way. But we would have a small group leader or an elder to come and sit in on that counseling session. Typically, when people came to our church, came to us for counseling, it communicated that their church did not do it well. Therefore, we wanted to help that individual uh, with whatever was going on in their lives. And then we wanted to train or begin a training process for that elder or small group leader or deacon or whatever that person, whatever leadership role that individual has. And then uh, they can go back to their local church and this counselee has somebody who is very much aware of what's going on in their lives. They've sat in on all the counseling sessions. And so they have created an ongoing sanctification process. Now, that is best case scenario. Now, again, I realize that we don't live in a perfect world, and there are several footnotes that you would want to add there. And again, if you want to talk about some of that with a little more specificity, because you need to, uh, I would love to uh, engage you uh, that way on our forum. And then just to answer the question, if you do charge monetarily, now, in a, a counseling ministry, uh, I don't think that you should at a local church. Uh, the church should underwrite the expenses, whether they're paying uh, part of the leadership team uh, to do the work of counseling, uh, the point person minimally, uh, and then all the resources that are needed, uh, printing costs and so forth. But if you did happen to charge uh, for counseling, uh, the way that you would do it, and this would fit more within a parachurch organization, is that the first counseling session would be more, and then sub subsequent counseling sessions would be less, and then you would scale according to availability, uh, scale according to ability, uh, because everybody can't pay the same. And the reason you would charge more for the first counseling session uh, is because a lot of counseling is one and done that people do go into buyer's remorse when they realize what's involved in the counseling process. And so if they're coming to take up your time, then charge them more on the front end. But if they're really serious about change and if subsequent sessions were less, uh, then that really creates a, a means for them and a desire for them to want to receive more counseling because it is a lower cost. And then, of course, depending on the individual, uh, you could scale according to their ability to pay because everybody is at a people are at a different place uh, economically, financially speaking. And then also, you could have other churches that help subsidize uh, the counseling that you receive as well. Now, this is more for parachurch uh, organizations local churches that can almost uh, cover the cost uh, completely of the whole counseling process that I'm describing here. But I did want to uh, add this little footnote with a few ideas about charging uh, when you do, when you believe that it's right. And again, if you want to talk more about that, please jump on our forums. Now, the last question is, how can leaders provide oversight and accountability? I'm going to state the obvious thing, and I know that it's obvious, and that is prayer, but it absolutely cannot be under, understated. A counseling ministry is warfare. It is absolute warfare, beginning to end, whether it's training people or counseling people. Uh, this Because you are, you are interacting with souls, and it is hard work. 
It is warfare on the council lore. It's warfare in the councilee's soul. And you just cannot understate the need for prayer uh, for the leaders to provide oversight and accountability. It is warfare. And it is one of the toughest ministries that you can have at a local church because of the pure shepherding nature of it, meaning that you are uh, it, that you're engaging people at the soul level where the warfare happens, and the devil will not be happy. And so it is a warfare. It is a very, it's very hard work. That's why I stated earlier that if you're counseling more than 12 to 16 hours, then uh, you need to reconsider because that's not a pace that's really sustainable for your own soul. Number two, leaders can provide oversight and accountability by having a point person that works with the leader of the ministry as a liaison. And so if this is a director of counseling ministry, for example, uh, they would be one person on the elder board or the pastoral team uh, that would be a point person that could communicate to uh, the rest of the leadership. The person leading this ministry needs somebody uh, that they can talk to, not just for strategy, I mean, that's important, uh, but also to care for their soul, to see how they're doing, because it is worth. And then there would be monthly meetings where you would conduct these accountability and strategy sessions. And then also the leadership needs to promote the discipleship throughout the church. They need to communicate a worldview that enlists the entire body. This is not a counseling office down the hall on the left. It is a worldview of discipleship that breathes through the entire body. Now, one of the ways that they can do that, I mean, every Sunday morning you have a captive audience. Every Sunday morning you can have a practical application to uh, your sermon uh, you can tie discipleship into your sermons 52 times a year, making it very deeply, richly theological as you exegete a passage of Scripture, and then also pastoral theology, practical, applicable, and you're communicating a worldview. But you also want to communicate that as well, that everybody has a responsibility to participate uh, in soul care within this church. You can also provide facilities, have a place that is safe for counselors and counselees. And then uh, finally, uh, you would want, if you're having a, a counseling ministry, a formalized counseling ministry at a local church, you would want to have a informed consent form. Now we have one uh, on our website and there are others available if you want to know how to find one, we can help you find one, but you do want a, a legal document that counselees sign off on saying uh, several things, but one of those things that it will say is that uh, we counsel from the Bible, that we hold God's Word as sufficient and transcendent authority over our lives, and this is how we're counseling, and you want them to sign off on that and that they have the freedom to leave at, at any time. You would say other things like you don't give medical advice or legal advice, uh, that you're only counseling according to God's Word, but you want some informed consent form that every counselee signs off on, and that is essential. And so these these are six things uh, that you want to consider as far as the leaders providing oversight and accountability. The big idea in this webinar is I belong to a local church. 
and I love biblical counseling. How do I propose a counseling ministry for our church, which does not have one? What are a few things I need to consider as I prepare a presentation to my leaders? Now, as I said at the onset, that this is not an exhaustive treatment of this subject. I said under a couple of my points that you may want to jump on our community forum to ask additional questions. We would love to do that. We are a dialogue ministry in addition to monologue. You can read and watch and listen uh, to our content. That's monologue. But we also discuss. We are a dialogue ministry too. And so some of you who are wanting to start a counseling ministry, you've been thinking about it, maybe some pastors or thinking about how can I uh, pull all this together. And, and if you want to talk about it, there is one place in the world where we can talk, and that is on our community forums. And so please just uh, start your forum post and ask your questions, and, and we would find no greater joy than to continue this discussion. Now, also, we can come to your church and, and do some work and, and help you with uh, training and, and initially maybe creating that world view at your local church and supplementing what you're trying to do as far as a counseling ministry. And so you let us know how we can serve you. The title of the webinar is Proposing a Counseling Ministry for a Church, How to Establish a Counseling Ministry in a Local Church. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for watching. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.